The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President, Founder and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. With me on today's esteemed panel, we have Adam Rosen, who's a member of the firm who's been with us for over a dozen years, I think at this point for sure, and Alyssa Klein, uh, not just a senior attorney, but a member of the firm, um, clearly an all-star panel. I will act as the moderator on the topic of what to do when the government comes a-knocking. So, as I said, in today's conference, we will discuss the latest trends and some practical tips for when government agencies arrive at the doorsteps of your company or of the work site where the foreign national employee is working. The best thing for you as the employer to do is to make sure that all of the paperwork is in order and that you have done what needs to be done in order to be compliant ideally before a representative from one of these federal agencies shows up either at your site or at the third-party client site. Um, so generally the three main agencies that come knocking on the door of either your company or your clients and clients are the FDNS, which is Fraud Detection and National Security, originally formed in 2004 and they're part of the USCIS. Then you have ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, again, part of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and then the U.S. Department of Labor, a different federal agency in and of itself, particularly with respect to LCA issues, making sure the employees being paid and the work location, all of the stuff that most of you are familiar with. And one may wonder, what exactly are these agencies looking for? Well, they obviously are investigating different aspects of the employer being compliant with immigration laws and employment laws. Also, these federal agencies investigate companies' compliance with the H-1B and the L-1 program, I-9, as well as wage and other issues. So for today's discussion, we will obviously focus on FDNS site visits, as we have continued to see that these number of visits continue to increase, as well as some trends that we have been observing as well as we can touch upon the U.S. Department of Labor or DOL investigations. So, Adam, if I can have you start. Sure. What if the company employs non-immigrant workers such as H-1 and L-1s? Will they have additional requirements to comply or be subject to specific time types of compliance review and investigations? So FDNS, Sheila, has many functions. Among them, FDNS is responsible for verifying that companies are being compliant with their non-immigrant cases, like H's and L's. But a lot of the focus that we've seen in the increase in site visits are with H-1B positions. So there are a number of different types of assessments that they do. 
They will perform fraud assessments where the FDNS officers are um, looking at benefit fraud and compliance assessments to decide to figure out the types and volumes of fraud that there are in certain kinds of immigration benefits programs. So they use data for these kinds of things in order to figure out whether there's fraud in a program like H-1B or L-1 or even other programs. There are compliance reviews, which are more systematic reviews of certain types of applications or petitions to verify the integrity of the, the benefit system, that whole process that's used for um, people or companies to apply to USCIS for benefits. And then there's the targeted site visits, which is, I think, what um, most of our listeners are familiar with and that they are listening in today for. Yeah, so that's pretty scary. So these are the three most common, which is the targeted site visits, the compliance reviews, and the performance of fraud assessments. But we also, a more recent development is that of the random or targeted site visit with a special focus on H-1B dependent employers and or employers that have H-1B workers that are placed off-site at a third-party location, which is so common, obviously, in the consulting company model and organizations. Uh, Lots and lots of Daisy consulting companies have that issue. Alyssa, so what types of immigration benefits do we most commonly see targeted for site visits? So the most common one that that we see is this random slash targeted site visit where certain types of employers in certain employment situations are being targeted. However, it is random. So in this situation, if you have an H-1B dependent employer or an employee working off-site, you can expect this to occur in an H-1B context. Uh, so in that sense, it is targeted, but it is not necessarily individually targeted. So you could be selected at random amongst the pool. So they're essentially checking on H-1B uh, petitions. It's been going on for a few years. Uh, visits on L-1s can also happen, especially L-1As. Uh, and essentially what the uh, FDNS is looking to do is to see if this employee uh, is doing the work as described in the petition. Um, they do generally occur after a petition has been uh, approved. Um, they're not required to be conducted before USCIS approves a petition. But what we have noticed most recently is that before USCIS approves, say, an H-1B petition, the FDNS officer is going out and verifying the details of the employment and the H-1B petition, and we would call these a pre-adjudication site visit. So determine whether to approve or deny the case, mm-hmm. etc. Also, when you mentioned the L-1A cases that are occurring, uh, is that because the more, there are more number of people trying to apply now for L-1s because of the EB-1, EB-2 backlog, EB-3 backlog so with I Indians? So I think and this is, comes out of one of the, the points that Adam mentioned where there's larger scale reviews of programs in general to identify systemic fraud uh, or to identify problems within a particular program. And the idea is that they want to review these L1As for the same sorts of issues that they're concerned about with the H1Bs. Okay, thank you, Alyssa. So I know that maybe many of the employers on today's conference call probably have had to deal with the FDNS or Department of Labor knock on their door. Uh, But for those who are not familiar, for those lucky few or lucky group that has not yet had the the, the stress of dealing with it. Could you describe how the process works, how, how somebody Absolutely. comes right from the time they knock on your company's Absolutely. door or show up? I mean, there can be different variations, but the bulk of the situations that we see 
are where the FDNS officer, or there could be two officers, uh, do the investigation. They normally go to the H-1B worker's place of employment, uh, and they do that first. So if this is a consulting business, then that means that your, your H-1B worker is being interviewed off-site and without you, the employer, present. Uh, and so employers may not even know about this until after the site visit is completed. Oh, that's scary. So should the employee keep the employer noti- notif- notified? Absolutely. You know, and when we talk to people about these site visits, um, we let them know, you know, have your worker try and call you, see if they can get you on, on speakerphone. Explain that it's not, not mandatory, um, but, you know, I think a lot of workers would try to comply if an officer shows up at a work site. Um, subsequent to the site, physical site visit where the worker is, FDNS generally follows up directly with the employer. And again, in this consulting uh, business scenario, because consulting companies may be physically very far from where that worker is and where the local FDNS is, these follow-ups are often timed by email. And the questions are going to be mainly pertaining to the H-1B petition itself. What is the job that the person is doing? What is the contractual chain that's led you to place them there? How do you supervise that worker? What are they getting paid? Things of that nature. But they may also ask company-wide questions. How many workers do you have off-site? What is the immigration status of all of your workers? So these are much broader questions that may or may not actually be directly you know, relevant to the specific case being verified. Okay. Uh, thank you, Alyssa. Uh, uh, Adam, if I can come to you, what is the best way for a company to handle these types of visits and follow-up verifications? So the first thing to understand is that the administrative site visit verification program uh, that FDNS carries out these site visits doesn't require participation. It's considered voluntary for the employer and the employee to respond to the FDNS officer's request for information. And so the result of non-participation would most likely result in USCIS issuing a formal notice of intent to revoke if it's an approved petition that where they've done the site visit post-approval, or if we're talking about a pre-adjudication site visit, you're talking about a denial or a notice of intent to deny. So the employer can respond um, to USCIS with information about the, the worker, the particular worker at that point in time. Now, the employer or employee can also request FDNS to reach out to their immigration lawyer who's who filed the H-1B petition, whether it was an approved petition or whether it's still pending, for assistance in responding to the officer's request for information. Now, quite commonly, the FDNS officer will only provide a few days, or they may even provide a specific deadline, even if whether it's a few days or longer. But typically, when we have employers who are reaching out to us for assistance in responding to these kinds of requests from FDNS, we will normally reach out to the FDNS officer when we've been hired in that situation to explain to the officer that that amount of time is not enough, that we'll be providing documents within X amount of time. And this way, the officer has the has the information of the attorney who is representing the employer, and we may provide some of the documentation or all of the documentation at a later point in time, but this is not like a request for evidence or a notice of intent to deny that you're receiving from USCIS on your petition that has this written in stone deadline that you're not getting extended. These deadlines that the FDNS officer is giving are usually negotiable and can be moved forward, so or move, move down so that you have more time to get um, what's necessary to the officer. You know, what Adam just said, that this is 
considered voluntary, I think might surprise some of the people on this call because when somebody comes all dressed up in a uniform, maybe a gun on the hip, you kind of almost assume, hey, these are like federal authorities, these are cops. If I don't answer, I might go to jail. I mean, there's there's fear. There's the fear factor that we refer to. But it's interesting that the law says it is considered voluntary on the people's part. But as Adam just said, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, it's voluntary because they can't force you to answer some questions. But then if they don't get the answers they're seeking, they hold the trump card because they can just outright deny the petition. And so you're not necessarily in a good place by choosing to say, you know what, I'm choosing not to answer because I need more time to think about it or get my paperwork in a row or and ducks in a row or the whatever. Thing, the thing about it is a very good point, Sheila. And But the thing about it at the same time is that sometimes – if you rush to give the officer everything that they're requesting, you may end up you may end up giving the officer more than more than what is really necessary in order for them to adjudicate the petition. Because as as Alyssa pointed out, sometimes the requests that the FDNS officers make are very broad and go beyond the scope of this particular H one B petition that's pending. And so if you take the time to say, yes, let me get back to you. My, we, there's an immigration lawyer who is representing my company on this case, and they will get you what you need for my, for my H-1B petition. Whether we're talking about a post-adjudication site visit or a pre-adjudication site visit, and you come to your immigration attorney, your attorney might tell you, well, there is no reason that the FDNS officer needs all this information about the immigration status of all, these, all the workers of the company when there's just this one pending petition. And there's nothing wrong in that situation and just giving what's necessary for the one petition because USCIS really doesn't have a legal basis to deny one H-1B petition because you've only given them information about and that's relevant to the one H-1B petition. Got it. So even when you're saying voluntary, one could be the entire voluntary choosing to respond at all. And the other part you're saying is just because they ask you for everything at the kitchen sink, don't give them everything. Just give them if you want to give them. And if you think it's okay and your paperwork is on it for that specific petition, rather than if they're going on a fishing expedition and trying to get everything under the sun from you. Excellent point. Thank you. Also, the issue, I guess, that, okay, if they call you by, if you get an email, which is very common with U.S. employers, especially for consulting companies, or a phone call, at least, uh, you know, uh, it seems a little bit easier so you can think or you can call back if there's a voicemail. But what if the officer, I guess, shows up in person as Alyssa talked about earlier, it's always best to be prepared, whether you're an employer or an employee, and tell your employees what to do if this happens. Have a program, have uh, information that you share with them, whether it's a monthly conference call or a quarterly conference call, and what to expect if the feds show up, ICE or D, you know, FDNS or ICE or DOL shows up at the person and asks to meet with the employee. Well, employers should also make sure that the first point of contact, who is the first point of contact at the company's headquarters or the employee's work locations, and they understand who FDNS is and what plan and what course of action and who's going to meet them, what they're going to do, where do they have the public access files, do they have their ducks in a row, all of the paperwork ready. Companies may also consider having a designated point of contact, sometimes it's the HR from the company generally, to meet with the officer. Sometimes it could be an in-house counsel if you're a larger company and you have in-house attorneys. Or 
Sometimes it could be another point of contact. It could even be an assistant in the HR department, especially if the HR is gone or traveling or out, who could be considered as the next main point of contact or the point of contact actually to represent and speak on behalf of the company. Again, remember, as we said, we discussed that participation is voluntary, but then you pay the price for being, for depending on how much information you share with the government. Also, the employees, you need to share that the employees should be made aware that such visits happen from time to time. The employer, you as the employer, should have a protocol in place, uh, such as Alyssa pointed that out briefly, maybe contacting you as the employer before answering the officer's questions or making sure that the employee understands what the officers are generally trying to verify, for example, like your work location, your duties, your salary. Because if you don't tell your employees and they suddenly get this, they may be so nervous and they may blabber some things that you will wish you had warned them and trained them in advance. Okay, so with that, Alyssa, let me come back to you. What are the timelines generally to respond to FDNS requests for information and documentation? I think Trump is increasing. Well, we've seen different timelines <clears throat> over over. I guess the Not last increasing timelines, increasing officers. Well, increasing officers doing the visits and varying timelines over the last few years. There was a point in time, I think, where we were seeing consistently, uh, you know, like one day, two day, three days being mentioned in emails from FDNS. And we don't, uh, the, the cases that I've come across, I, I have not seen that as consistently um, as before. But what does seem to be is that there is an internally driven policy. Um, like Adam said, this is not like an RFE where you have 87 days to respond. There's not a specific timeline in place. So the deadlines that the officers are given are, are given based on internal policy, internal rules. And so that is what's going to drive the officer to follow up with the attorney or follow up with the employer or the employee to, to get what they want. So they may give you a deadline where you guys can negotiate or they may not give you a deadline and just keep following up with you. I think when it's an employer, it's different. I remember when I was talking to a gentleman who got a conf who got a voicemail call from the FDNS officer and he immediately replied and basically gave up so much useless information that could get not just the employer into trouble, but him into trouble because it contradicted what was in his own H1 petition. And Again, as both Adam and Alyssa have said, this is voluntary. So if somebody leaves you a voicemail, even if they say I'm the federal government and here's my number, you don't have to call them right back because sometimes I think sometimes some of these officers, for example, when they're investigating a company, they call every single employee whose phone number or email they may have tracked from the internet. So they contact you know 75 employees. If 20 of them call back or five of them call back, and there's mismatch or inconsistency in the answers, now they'll go either after you as the employer or you as the employee for having volunteered the information. So again, remember, the ideal course is not to respond right away, especially if it's a phone call or an email, but to talk to the company lawyer, talk to your outside lawyer, whether it's Murthy Law Firm or whoever your law firm is, because that way you can strategize and at least you'll know what the law is in terms of not vomiting out, out all this information to get yourself into deeper trouble. Okay, so next, let me come back to you, Adam. Once the employer and the employee respond to the inquiry, how do we know that everything has been resolved? So 
You don't always, unfortunately. In the case of a pre-adjudication site visit, so we're talking about pending petition, this will be fairly clear based on when you get the decision issued by USCIS. Um, and that's going to be subject to existing processing times. You can always choose to premium process your case, and that whether to do that or not is a, a decision to make um, internally or with your counsel. Um, but this is not so clear in post-adjudication site visits. The, FDN, the FDNS officer is you know, maybe satisfied once they've got answers to their questions, but there's no way to know if the employer is quote-unquote successful um, with giving the officer what's needed in order to wrap things up and put it to bed so you don't have to worry about it. This is one of the situations where we've, in talking with employers, we've said basically that you no need... No news to, is good news? No news is good news, and you need to be okay with not hearing anything. This is not one of those situations where you can, you know, you can keep calling the officer or expect that the officer is going to call you back and say, oh, everything's good, don't worry, you're, you're fine, two thumbs up. Um, this is a situation where more contact with the officer is not necessarily going to be helpful and that you have to be okay with not hearing from the officer again because the officer is not the officer is not your friend. They're not your buddy. They're, they're looking for fraud. That's why they're called fraud detection and national security. It's almost like I remember when they first came on the scene at one of the ELA meetings, at the ELA national meeting in the annual conference, they said, because we've hired these FDNS officers, even if there's no fraud, by golly, we're going to find some fraud. It's like if a cop follows you in three city blocks, he's going to catch you on an orange light or a light that just... So there's a risk of that happening. So be careful. That's why you need to be careful to have those protocols right. in place, what to do, etc. Alyssa, what are the other things to keep in mind? Well, I think it's important to understand that even though these are separate agencies, FDNS, ICE, USCIS, DOL, um, they do partner with, with each other to share information. Uh, so just because you, it's related to that one petition with USCIS doesn't mean that that information is not going beyond this one office. Uh, so, for example, USCIS has formed a partnership with ICE in which FDNS pursues uh, administrative inquiries into most applications and petition fraud, while ICE conducts criminal investigations into major fraud conspiracies. Uh, now, we did talk earlier about, you know, there's a lot of randomness in these investigations, but if a company, you know, is consistently being subjected to site visits, it may be that the company is under investigation and it is more than a random site visit check. So this would be important then for the employer to seek assistance from qualified immigration attorneys if you haven't done so already uh, to review the site visit history and, and get assistance in responding to, to future inquiries. And some, from time to time, I'll do consultations where they say I've had a lot more site visits this year, for example, in the last six months than I've had in the last 10 years of running my company. And if it's very repeated and ongoing, that means there's they're hoping to catch it's the same thing like the city and, cop following. And that's, and that's why when the inquiry comes from FDNS asking for lots of documents beyond the scope of one specific petition, it can be dangerous to provide it because they can then use that for a wider investigation. And that doesn't mean that because they ask for it, they are conducting one, but it just makes their job easier if at some point in the future they decide to pursue one. Okay, thank you. So I know we've talked a lot about both the FDNS, which is part of the USCIS, and ICE, we've touched upon the immigration. But the other types of investigations that are pretty common and becoming more common that you as employers need to be aware of is with the U.S. Department of Labor, Wage and Hour Division, WHD, which actually plays a very large role with respect to H-1B compliance issues because obviously, as most of you on this conference call know, 
each H-1B has to have the LCA or labor condition application, which of course, as you know, is certified. I know electronically, but it is technically reviewed and certified and blessed by the U.S. Department of Labor, which means that they have additional compliance requirements regarding maintaining the PAFs or public access files that you as employers are making the correct wage payments about, uh, about equal to or about the prevailing wage as determined by the U.S. Department of Labor and that by hiring H-1B workers, there is a non-displacement of U.S. workers, which always existed under the law, but now after the Trump's executive order uh, by American Hire American or Baja as it's called, by the way, I can't believe it, that was in April 2017, that's just about two years ago. Oh my God, how time flies. Okay, so next we're gonna go to back to you, Adam. Adam, so I think most employers may be somewhat familiar with the public access files and the issue regarding wages, but what exactly does non-displacement mean? So non-displacement means where the employment of an H-1B worker does not essentially force a U.S. worker out of their job. And it's something that generally doesn't Im only impacts certain kinds of employers, those that are dependent and are not employing an exempt worker. A good example of this is the case a few years ago involving uh, the Walt Disney Company, where employees of Disney were claiming that they were laid off and replaced with H-1B workers who they then had to train. And the concern for Department of Labor is protecting the jobs of U.S. workers from being from being replaced by a lower paid H-1 workforce or just by being, whether even if they're not lower paid, but just being paid by, being replaced by um, a non-U.S. worker. And I remember it was a big, big issue during Trump's campaign mm -hmm. about the whole Disney thing. Right. There was a 60 Minutes show right. on that whole issue as well. Okay, so Alyssa, how does the Department of Labor investigate the H-1B employer and whether they're in compliance with the law? Right. So usually this is triggered when an H-1B employer's employee or former employee makes a wage and hour complaint to the DOL, and a wage and hour division is obligated to investigate the complaints. Um, what happens after that is DOL shows up at the employer's location or they contact the employer and request a public access files and other records, um, which by regulation must be produced within three days of the request. Um, as with FDNS visits, employers should have a protocol for receiving the DOL agent. Designated personnel to be the first point of contact is always smart. Um, understand what is required and not required to provide. Uh, again, the employer is entitled to three days to produce the, the public access file documentation, so you don't have to hand things over the day of the visit. Uh, an employer is not required to produce internal material such as that relating to their own internal self-audits of their files or attorney-client privilege communications or mater material. Uh, usually the DOL will leave the employer with a specific list of items including a time frame for the public access files such as all the public access files for a specific mm -hmm. one-year period like August 2017 to July 2018. Uh, and that may be printed on the actual request, but sometimes the DOL uh, um, officer may actually want less. So uh, they'll, they'll let the employer know, um, you know, what exactly is. And as a general required. rule, give only what they ask at most, if not less, always are on the side better to give less and when you give more of that give information it's the same, gets you into It's the trouble. same principle that Adam was talking about with respect to the site visits. Mm -hmm. 
Well, but yeah. three days is really not a whole lot of time. So, Adam, how can an employer handle this? So, it's going to depend on how um, how large of a request is being made by the Department of Labor. Um, it'll also depend on the Department of Labor, the agent. Some offices uh, tend to move faster in what they're doing, in, probably in part because of the volume of investigations they have going. If a company's files have been internally audited on a regular basis and are being appropriately maintained, this will greatly help the company comply with the Department of Labor's request. So the company can go back to Department of Labor and request an extension of the deadline. Uh, But again, because, as Alyssa mentioned, the law specifically provides a three-day time frame, the Department of Labor, unlike FDNS, is in a much stronger position to push back and say no. And so this is why having the internally audited documentation is a good idea. But even if you don't, um, going back to ask for more time and um, using that time wisely in getting everything together. Companies should consider involving their attorneys before making public access files and uh, additionally requested documents available to the department to the Department of Labor agent so that um, you have advice um, from your counsel on how to best and ideally comply with what the the agent is the, the agent is asking for at getting that advice before submitting the documents to the Department of Labor agent uh, contacting your counsel as soon as possible after you are contacted by that DOL agent is important because the your attorney can reach out to the agent in order to initiate that negotiation for additional time yeah I think that makes a lot of sense just having a third party in the middle Mm -hmm. acting as your interpreter in a sense and negotiating for you and knowing the law and telling you not to go volunteer and give up all this information about all the other employees or additional uh, information, especially if the government's going on a fishing expedition trying to get everything under the sun to figure out how they can go after you and penalize you, what have you. Right. Okay. So once the Department of Labor reviews the requested documentation, the the Department of Labor could either assess fines to you as the employer for violations. They could impose back wages on some employees or many employees uh, if they identify that H-1B workers have been underpaid or in really egregious or bad, really in the worst case scenario, a company on top of paying fines and back wages could also possibly be prohibited from utilizing the H-1B program for a one year or three year or longer time frame This is referred to as a debarment. If the company does not agree with the Department of Labor's decision, of course, you as the employer are allowed to appeal that decision. And sometimes employers also may be able to negotiate with the Department of Labor's attorneys, their counsel, if the Department of Labor has assessed back wages or fines or debarment. Do that because I always say you lose nothing and having a good attorney on your team uh, negotiating for you makes a huge difference because we've seen at the Muti Law Firm where just by having one of our attorneys, like Alyssa, for example, talk to the the uh, uh, the Department of Labor or ICE or FDNS, we have really changed things around, saved tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, really, it can have a big impact in negotiating. Yeah. So don't underestimate the power of negotiation. And I know sometimes I tend to be and all of us tend to be penny wise and pound foolish. You don't want to be silly and cheap with saving a few thousand dollars in attorney's fees and paying 10 times, 100 times of that to some Department of Labor agent as a penalty or a fine. It's really bad business, and I don't think I need to 
tell smart, wise business entrepreneurs like each of you on today's call? No, absolutely. The, the cost of the aftermath of a site visit or investigation could far outweigh the investment of taking care of things before something happens. Um, you know, not just financially, you know, in terms of fines, the employer's ability to do business may be endangered if, if they're uh, are, are debarred from the program. And then you also have individual employees. They may not be able to work. They may have to leave the U.S. So it can be widespread. Uh, so really the best thing an employer can do is be prepared. Self-audit your files, have standard operating procedures in place for these areas of compliance. Make sure your staff is trained up um, and understand what they are responsible for uh, in the different areas of company's business. And you know, when needed, bring in assistance of qualified attorneys, but do it sooner rather than later to, to minimize your risk exposure. Thank you, Alyssa. So it's important to understand that as employers that are operating in the United States and applying for all these benefits, there are various rules that you have to comply with. But the thing to keep in mind with whether you're being in investigated and contacted by FDNS or ICE or DOL is that while there are certain things that you're required to give them or do or certain deadlines that you are required to meet, you're not obligated to make their job easier than it needs to be. And that is an important part of keeping in mind and how you conduct yourself and seeking advice. So I know that uh, this is obviously an issue that happens all the time. And as employers, you need to be extra mindful and careful about everything. I know sometimes when I go to speak uh, at a conference around the country, people say, well, what happens if the, the uh, federal government knocks on my employee's door, for, uh, door, for example, if I've hired F1 students or F1 students are on CPT or OPT? Uh, all kinds of different issues, what happens to the individual. I think we may want to decide to have a separate Know Your Rights, maybe a, a teleconference for you all as employers in case there's a knock on your door as an individual as opposed to as an employer, uh, because I think that that could be very valuable. Um, and in general, the rule is like both Adam and Alyssa had mentioned earlier, a lot of it is voluntary. Nobody, people think, oh, I have nothing to hide. Let me just volunteer and give out all this information. No, you don't have to open the door, for example. You don't have to give out information. Um, and so really be prepared. Always have your ducks in a row. Plan and think about what you're going to do. And as always, if you're not sure you don't have a good attorney or law firm that you're working with, certainly do consider our incredibly talented and experienced team at the Murthy Law Firm with the slogan, We Know Your Immigration Matters. On behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Adam Rosen, Alyssa Klein, and our entire Murthy Law Firm family, we thank you for joining us in today's teleconference and we wish you a wonderful spring. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services, and more at www.murthy.com.